All right, James, thanks for joining me today. No, you're very welcome. It's uh, it's brilliant to be here. It's 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 good to have you here. So I've uh, I've done a little bit of research on you. Um, so obviously you're a uh, number one, uh, the author of the number one best-selling book called uh, Investable Entrepreneur, and you're a business advisor of the year, and you are the co-founder of Robot Mascot, which is a global award-winning investment readiness agency. And uh, the last number that I was able to get was that you helped founders raised over 170 million pounds in funding or was it dollars i'm not sure yeah um so yeah i guess we're going to talk a lot about uh fundraising and investing today but we'll we'll see where the conversation takes yeah absolutely it's actually 220 million now so uh yeah there we go it's always going up right always going up (laughs) there we go Um, nice. So uh, obviously, I'd love to hear some stories and more about that. But maybe just to start, just for the context, um, I believe you've been doing this for a while now, right? This is like a decade or so. Um, how, can you just take us to the beginnings? How how did Robot Mascot start? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so the business is coming up to about ten years. Um, so I'm not sure how long it's been as a limited company, but we've definitely been been doing this for nearly ten years now. So started life as as two two co-founders to um two creatives i was a designer my business partner was a creative director we um created a brand agency he he created it i um i joined him i think he was about a year into into sort of a, being a sole trader trading as as robot mascot i joined him a bit soon after that we sort of officially launched as a limited company and um and started the business proper and uh yeah we we started life as a as a brand agency really wanted to work with visionaries like the people that the pioneers people doing something different wanted to help them create their brand do something do something exciting and different and innovative in the world um and as a result of that we started t- talking to a lot of startups in the in the tech scene around around london and realized through those experiences and and also some advice that some advisors of ours gave that also happened to be angel investors that communicating to investors was a really big issue for for founders and we had a few clients that we'd built the brands for that then said could you help us with your pitch deck um could you could you design our pitch deck for us and we're like yeah sure send over your business plan and your financials and and we'll sort of put something together we'll write the content and put a pitch together you know how hard it can be we've all seen dragon's den it can't be can't be too challenging they would you know start off ourselves we just wanted the work right and um so we sort of fumbled through the first few projects um and yeah these advisors that were also angel investors said these are great like if every pitch sent my way looked and sounded and read like these it would make our lives so much easier i think you're on to something here you know that you've got something might be worth exploring it seeing if you can package it up as a service and and that's exactly what we did we we spent years of of researching with both founders that have raised investment investors and and everyone in that space to kind of find out what really makes investors tick and we became an expert in the mind of investors and we pivoted slowly the business from a brand communication agency to a specialist investor communication agency mm-hmm. and all we do now is is create pitch decks to to um to raise investment and through the result of that we've kind of expanded our services so we realized that not everyone has a fully formed business plan and financial projections so they needed help mm-hmm. in those so we then launched those services and started to sort of bundle up our offer to kind of take a founder all the way from sort of having nothing 
all the way through to having all of their pitch materials, their financials, their business plan already. And more recently, we've M launched the investor outreach piece. It's all well and good having a great pitch, but mm -hmm. you can't speak to investors. It's kind of like having a website with no traffic. So, um, yeah, over the years, it's evolved and expanded. But but yeah, that's the kind of that's the starting point. Really interesting. So started really more on the branding and creative side, and then looks like it went, or is still going more and more into a like business um, strategy and just and fundraising strategy and and those kind of topics. Yeah, like, that's know. it. And I think that's partly why the book was so and is so successful is because I'm not an ex VC telling founders how to pitch to VCs. I'm an entrepreneur myself who knows who knew nothing about how to raise funding figured it out for some clients found out you know researched it understood the the target market who like like we would with any brand project which in this case was the investor and it's like how do we sell this thing to them this product which is shares mm -hmm. so we sell products that's that's what me and my co-founder have spent our lives doing in branding and advertising selling products we just treated shares as a product and the mm -hmm. angel investor as the consumer how do we best sell this to them? We need to get inside their head. We need to know what makes them tick. We need to create language that that makes them want to buy. Um, so we just applied those same skill sets. So the book talks more about everything I learned trying to figure this out. So I'm talking in the language of an invest uh, of a founder to to a founder rather than talking as an investor to a founder. So I think it has a different tone and it has a different approach. And I think that resonates with a lot of entrepreneurs because. It, it feels more, more real, more like mm. this is this is what it's really like. I think. In the book, I think you talk about an investable entrepreneur, right? That's that's what it's all about. So, what 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 is an investable entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. So this is the sort of term we've created to to define kind of that ideal founder, the one that that raises capital. So about one percent of founders raise capital um, successfully. That's that one percent out of those who try to raise, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's about one percent ish success rate. It fluctuates, um, but but generally sticks in and around one percent. So something special about that one percent. Something's different about them. Um, something sets them apart, and we we wanted to sort of distill what that was, and and we sort of coined that that character, the investable entrepreneur. You know what. They're the one percent that everyone else is an entrepreneur. They're the investable entrepreneur, mm -hmm. and if you want to raise investment, you need to be an investable entrepreneur. And and what we realised that there's three three key traits that were expressed by three we call critical fundraising assets. So the three traits: the first, that you you're highly resourceful as an entrepreneur, you, and a highly resourceful entrepreneur can basically leverage resources beyond their current control so this might um this could be capital but it could be talent it could be partnerships it could be advisors you're able to bring all of these things around you and you do that by being able to really clearly pitch your vision and get people to enroll in your vision because you when you're when you can get people excited by your vision they'll invest in your business but they they'll also you'll also find top talent want to join your team they'll do so at a lower than market rate salary in return for some equity you'll be able to bring on board incredible advisors to support you you can access game changing partnerships to launch your business so the first thing is to be a highly resourceful entrepreneur 
The second thing was that they were very financially competent. They really understood the financial risks as well as the financial rewards. They 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 knew how to reassure the investor enough in their financial capabilities that they were able to protect their wealth. You know, the investor is is investing their own, certainly angels and high net worths, investing their own personal wealth into you and your vision. You could look at that as being their kid's inheritance and they're entrusting that in you to deliver a return so that they can pass that on to their to the next generation. So you're asking a lot, not, not only to bang you, you and your vision out of everybody else who's pitching, but also for them to risk their own capital, their, their kids' inheritance on you and your vision and your idea. So, so you need to reassure them that you're financially competent, going to be able to, to um, deliver those financial returns that they're looking for, that you have an eye on the prize, which is that eventual exit, and the type of and the, that you're building the type of business that could deliver them the types of returns they're looking for. And then the final trait was that they were commercially competent. They they understood how to create a commercially viable business. They they didn't just have an idea. They knew how to commercialize it. They knew how to to scale it up. They had a short and a long term plan for developing this business, and they and they had a very clear roadmap, not just on product on sales and marketing and recruitment and, and all of these things that, that are key components of the business. And they need, knew what they needed in the short term, but they also had an idea, and, and obviously none of this is exact, but an idea of where they were heading and what they needed in the future. Um, so once you had those three th- elements and you could convince an investor that you you had those three traits, you became an investable entrepreneur. And, and the way we express that is through the business plan, the financial projections and the pitch materials. The business plan shows that you're commercially credible, that you can have an implementation strategy that's going to deliver success. The financials, of course, show that you're financially competent and the pitch gets people excited by your vision. And if you can get those things done at a high level and 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 really, really, really well, you become an investable entrepreneur. And, and I think very few founders understand the reasons why they're asked for a pitch or why they're asked for a financial model or why they might be um, asked to talk through their business case. Because for them, it's all about the product and the vision and the idea. And the forecasts just seem like random kind of numbers, finger in the air kind of numbers. Who knows what's happening in the next six months, let alone the next five years. But it's not about the actual numbers. It's about how you've built them and what they say about how you mm-hmm. think strategically and how financially competent you are as a, as a founder. It's more about that and understanding how you think than it is the actual result of the of the number in the cell in the spreadsheet because everyone knows that whatever you put in year five for revenue is is made up like that's the one thing founders and investors can agree upon is is it's made up but it's it's about how you make it up that's important Mm. so yeah so so having that context really helps founders realize why they're being asked for these things and why it's worth putting the effort into them i think All right, before we continue, I want to take a second to talk about our sponsor. I've always been saying that one of the best ways to learn about business is by working closely with a smart and successful entrepreneur, and this might be your opportunity. Our sponsor is a company called JudgeMe. JudgeMe is a Shopify product review plugin, and they're the number one plugin on Shopify. They're literally, if you look at the Shopify app store, they're in the first spot. They're bootstrapped, and they manage to outcompete 
other companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars by just being smarter and building a better product. They were started by PJ, who was also a guest on the Founders Lounge, episode 54, so I recommend you to check it out. They recently moved their headquarters to London and they're looking for smart people to join them. They're looking for product managers, engineers, and they're looking to fill other roles as well. So check out careers.judge.me and see if you find any role that you like and apply. So that's careers.judge.me. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. It's so funny. You just mentioned the numbers and I, so I, with my previous startup, we raised an investment round, right? We raised around half a million from mostly from angel investors. And I, yesterday when I was preparing for this podcast, I actually looked at our pitch after years. So that was, that was, we raised seven years ago or so. Uh, my, my first proper startup, um, very little experience. Um, I knew I worked at a startup school before, which was some kind of like an accelerator where we also, we were also teaching founders how to pitch. So I knew a little bit about pitching and, and decks and we, I, I knew about different formats. We used to follow the Sequoia, it was Sequoia pitch deck, uh, like a specific sequence of which slides to include and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, I was looking through our pitch deck yesterday and I was looking at the financials and I was just laughing. I was like, oh my God, these numbers. First of all, they were crazy. Second of all, some of them made zero sense. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, it's so funny when you don't, you don't know what you're doing. And yeah, the numbers were, I mean, obviously made up. Any any projection is made up, especially in the startup when you have zero um, data, zero kind of track record to <laughs> to back those numbers up, right? But it, 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 it does make a difference what those projections are based on. And I, I felt like ours were just wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, there's a there's a sort of an unwritten rule amongst most um, most investors to certainly angel investors to kind of double the length of time and half the amount of revenue <laughs> that a founder uh, projects. And if that still looks like it's possible, then yeah. maybe there's something there. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a common common thing. It's it's really difficult though to know, and this will and it will vary investor to investor. Mm-hmm. There's no one right rule but and that's why it's less about the numbers and more about how you got to them uh, and you're always going to be criticized on those numbers it's about how you respond to that criticism and say look i understand that that's a challenge it's a challenge we want to take on it's um I, you know it's going to take a lot of hard work and possibly even a little bit of luck but mm. this is what we're going to do to get there this is why we believe this to be possible this is what stepping stones we're going to take to achieve this so they're all whether they're going to say they're too high or too low. They're never going to say they're right. You've just got to be able to respond as to why you believe in them and why you're working towards that goal and why you believe that can be possible and have a credible backstory to it. Um, and that's the secret, really. You, you know, we had, you know, I've seen founders kind of go right. I've, I do want to be sort of show I'm sensible and, and perhaps more conservative, not like these other founders that put crazy numbers in. So I've gone for sort of 10 million revenue in five years. And I was like, I can guarantee they're going to think that's not high enough growth to most investors mm-hmm. say that's not enough growth to deliver um, a return. So sure enough, that's exactly what happened. You're growing too slowly. I don't think there's enough of an opportunity here. So they wax it up to 20 million. Next conversation. This is too high. Like how on earth do you think you're going to do 20 million in five years from a standing start? And they're like, but but the last investors said the 10 was too low. So I thought I'd change it to 20. It's like, that's a really crap reason for changing <laughs> yeah. your forecast, right? But if in both cases, they'd have had a, a proper response as to, 
well, 10 million is achievable based on X, Y, and Z. Now, if we were to launch into vertical A, B, and C, that would expand our market share to Y. And and if we're able to do that quick enough, then absolutely we could start hitting volume revenues of 20, 30, maybe even 50 million. Um, it might take eight years instead of five to get there, but but that's possible because there are these other opportunities, but we're not, we're not, we've not really explored those markets enough yet. So we're, we're basing this on the markets we have explored and where we have delivered product market fit. Suddenly, that's a different, completely different conversation, isn't it? Um, so it's about being able to have that narrative, being that investable entrepreneur, having that strategy that backs up the numbers and both of those things backing up the pitch and being able to hold the, hold yourself uh, in those conversations and in those moments, I think. You mentioned before, so I want to come back to to pitching and, and pitch decks later, but one thing you mentioned before, so there are three um, um, things about investable entrepreneur, right? There's commercial competence, financial competence, and resource resourcefulness. So for financial competence and commercial competence, it's, it's a skill that we know can be learned, right? It's something you can, I don't know, you can get mentors, you can... Uh, read books, you can uh, learn through doing, whatever it is. What about resourcefulness? Is that something that can be learned or or what do you think about it? I think it can be. For some founders, it's more natural than others. This is the showmanship bit really, isn't it? It's the, it's the being comfortable standing up and presenting your vision and kind of rallying people around you. The, the Richard Branson, Elon Musk role, less Jeff Bezos. He's very commercially competent, financially competent, but you would pay him as a great visionary in terms of his or, or his ability to kind of pitch to people and get them really excited. But Steve Jobs was absolutely great at it. But you probably don't think of him as being particularly financially competent. He had people around mm -hmm. him who could, who could do that. So different founders have different natural homes across those three areas. And it's about trying to recognize where you're really good and where you need to, to level yourself up. Um, in those areas to at least be able to hold your own. Um, so having a, you know, practicing as, as much as you can, you know, the story I often use is, is, uh, Martin Luther King, the, the classic, um, you know, I have a dream speech. He, we all know the rehearsed version that, that, that was on TV, right? But he, he did that speech a thousand times up and down the States mm -hmm. in different church groups for about three years before he got that TV address. Once he got that TV address, he thought, well, this is nationally broadcast and I've already done this speech three times, like 3,000 times across, you know, over the last three years across the country, everyone who's going to watch this will have heard it already um, or, or a lot of people will. So I'm going to change the speech. I'm going to do a different talk and I'm going to talk about how America's given ethnic minorities a blank check and it was a blank check speech. And that was what was sent to the broadcasters. And they had the the script there ready to commentate on it. And halfway through the talk, he saw people were leaving, people were getting restless. And there was this lady who was a soul singer who used to accompany him on these talks and, and do kind of a bit of a warm-up act and, and get people kind of in a good mood. And she shouted, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. And he switched into his tried and tested and rehearsed. I have a dream speech that he could deliver with confidence and power. And he'd said those words thousands and thousands of times. And the rest is history. It's the most iconic speech of all time. So the moral of that story really is, is when 
when you get a when you when you're happy with your pitch, when you're happy that it delivers the sorts of information you want to get across, but but your passion and your and and your vision and your story in a way that you want to tell it, stick and don't twist. Just keep pitching the same pitch again and again and again. If investors are asking you questions about things, don't go away thinking, "Crap, I should have added another slide to the pitch to to address that, so I don't get asked that again." The fact that they're asking you questions means you've engaged them, you've sold them in on the vision, and they want to find out more. If you don't get any questions, it means you've bored them to tears, and they can't get you out of the room quick enough. So you want questions, but it doesn't mean you're missing content in your pitch. Your pitch is there to to get them to invest their time, not get them to invest their money. The pitch is there for them to say, I want to lean in. I want to spend another 15 minutes with you asking questions and having a conversation. And I want to book another meeting with you to go through the detail. So you want them to invest their time and you want them to be engaged. So just practice the same pitch again and again and again. Every opportunity you can go to pitch events. Maybe if you're in an accelerator program, bring a cohort together and, and practice your pitch on each other. Just get really, really good at it. You know, I I, I wrote my book nearly four years ago, three years ago now, three, four years ago. And since before I wrote that book, actually, a lot of the core content in that book was part of a weekly presentation I give to founders as part of our marketing at Robot Mascot. I do a weekly fundraising strategy session. I've been doing more or less the same strategy session and talking about the same ideas in this book now for four or or five years. Same methodology. And and Mm. it means I can just present it at any given opportunity with confidence and clarity. I don't change it too much. I get bored of it the same way that, um, you know, uh, Chris Martin of uh, Coldplay probably is bored of singing Yellow, mm. <laughs> right? He's the, probably the last thing he wants to do is go up and stand on stage and sing Yellow because he's just done it millions of times. But it's what paid the bills. It's, it's, it's what everyone is there to see. Um, so you, you kind of just need to get into that rhythm and get into that groove and build that confidence. Because I used to hate public speaking, hated it. And now I'm doing weekly presentations in front of hundreds of people, speaking on podcasts. And, and a few years ago, the idea of getting up in front of a crowd of people and or even in one-on-one and delivering something, a presentation, was would have terrified me. Uh, but you get better at it as as time goes on if you if you stick with it. You do, yeah. I talk about that sometimes also here, just about the podcast, right? For me, publishing the first few episodes of the podcast was terrifying. It was like weird. And I was strange on a podcast, well, on the camera. I didn't know what to talk about. And um, then eventually, so this is, we've, we've done I think 75 or so episodes now, and eventually it just becomes natural, right? It becomes normal. And then you appreciate it so much. And for me, it was the same. I think very awkward and very um, not comfortable on camera and then yeah those are the things that in the end you appreciate the most when you actually overcome overcome those challenges right yeah i found some of the first videos i recorded for you for like on youtube the other day the around what we do and i was just like oh my god (laughs) it's just it's like i kind of want to take them down but uh, i probably should but so awkward and so nervous like you could see how nervous i was uh, and how awkward i felt um yeah it's it's crazy how quickly it becomes normal um once yeah. you start doing it yeah i i know what you mean yeah. and i would say i was thinking in the background about resourcefulness in, in general um i 
100% learned how to be resourceful. Um, I think when I was younger, I don't think I was naturally a resourceful person. Um, I think I just, I don't know, I didn't have to be or I didn't learn how to be. Um, and I learned by being around resourceful people. That was the number one thing. Just because, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's it's not something you learn from books. Um, it's 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 really not, it's not something theoretical. It's, uh, and, and I don't think there are, very good books about that. It probably depends also what exactly you want to be resourceful at, but just in, in, in the context of business, I've learned by being around other people who are good at that and seeing how they solve problems and seeing how they, you know, think on the spot and how when there is no solution, how they figure out a solution. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. And now, and, and then eventually when I was in um, a difficult situation or I had to solve a problem, I was like, huh. How would that person think about this? And then that's how I got to the solution. I would like to think yeah. I'm much more resourceful now than I was. Yeah, that reminds me of a, of a story. Like when, when we first started out, we were probably about three, four years old at this point. And we had identified someone called Daniel Priestley, who, who's written yeah, I, three or four business yeah. books. Um, and we his the way he worked really resonated with us, the sorts of things he said. And we, we'd never met him. We'd been a couple of his events, read, read all his books. And we have one of our first ever marketing plans. We had kind of marketing is the way I, I came, I, I studied marketing. So we had the marketing plan, the way you're taught to do it in school type thing and, and on, on marketing courses. And then under each section, we had a heading, what would Daniel do? And we started to think about how based on everything we've learned through exactly. Daniel Priestley's books, how would Daniel do it? Um, and those strategies were the ones that we still use today and we still um, we still employ. Now, the funny thing that what that led to was a client of ours or a partner of ours um, bringing us up in conversation to Daniel Priestley, this pitch agency. And he then checked us out and he was blown away by what we were doing. And we met him and then he became a shareholder in robot mascot um so so we've got this plan from three years earlier going what would daniel do and three years later we're in a room with him and he wants to be part of the business because he could look at our website and go with a little bit of my help they could really just transform what they're doing so and and he saw that because we were doing what he says he should do just not as good as perhaps we could do if we had his one-to-one -one advice um but he saw something in us because we were reflecting the way anyway we've got off on a bit of a tangent but it's, it's just that that idea of thinking about how would someone else do it really helps you unblock the next um uh the next step of the journey or or the thing that you're struggling with it's a, it's a great way to to just think outside the box a little bit and just yeah. get outside of your own mind love it i i think that's such a good trick that anyone should use and just try to yeah try try to apply it and then try to solve problems uh, like that um so when it comes to fundraising and when it comes to your clients how so i'm trying to understand somebody comes to you so let's say it's a founder or it's a it's a it's a startup team and what's usually there so they, do they come with a pitch or they've got nothing or how do they just know that they want to raise funding but they have no idea how to approach it what what's usually that the, the kind of process that you take them through and maybe what are the most, most common things that you need to teach them or mistakes that they make mm. yeah so the majority of our clients are coming to us having have somewhere along that early stage journey somewhere between concept and product market fit um and 
they need to raise funding for the next phase. So it could be very early pre-seed funding to get a proof of concept built, or it could be we've got an MVP in the market and we're, we've got some beta users and we now need to raise some seed capital to scale. Anything along that journey, really, from concept to, to product market fit. Um, but they've never raised funding before. The majority have never raised funding before. They've they're bootstrapped to this point. Um, so they tend to be either actively in the business full time and they've bootstrapped it to this point, or this is still a side hustle and it's being they've done pretty well and it's been funded so far as a kind of side hustle that doesn't have to pay their way. But they need to start focusing on it full time to scale up, and to do that, they need the funding required to to make that shift from side hustle to full time on on this uh, on this project. So it's usually sort of those sorts of um, categories, but generally speaking, never raised funding before, don't really know what to say, how to say it, what they need in place. So then we extract from them for a, a strategic planning tool we've created their business case, kind of how they plan on growing the business, what their intentions are for the business in the short and the long term. And then we use that to produce business plans, financial models, pitch materials on their behalf but kind of always with them, yeah, not for them, but with them, I suppose, and and kind of reflect back and go, here's a, this is a potential gap, weakness. Here's some strengths we can leverage. Here's some areas we should focus on in terms of leveling up your business case or improving your your expectations. Your 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 growth ambition is is too high or too low, or your valuation expectations too high or too low, or whatever it is. Give them the advice and the guidance they need to to put together a credible business case credible set of financial projections a captivating pitch deck um to start engaging with with investors so yeah that tends to be the the scenario all right um how many investors do does a founder usually need to talk to before they raise a round so i there's a little bit of a story behind this because i i think it was last week when i was talking to a first-time founder was doing on an, working on an ai startup which it's actually, I think it's a good idea, something in language learning, um, and they have an MVP, and they said they tried to raise funding, and they didn't succeed, and I was like, okay, how, you know, how, how many people did you pitch to? And I think he said seven or maybe five. And I, again, yesterday, I went and I looked at how many investors we pitched to when we were raising back six years ago, and I think it was 55, and then in the end, it was maybe... 15 of them or so who invested and I actually thought that that was a pretty good ratio um I'm curious yeah what's what's your experience because I I from everything I hear and I see seven investors is virtually nothing because nah, you get yeah. a lot of those in that state. yeah um and I think th this is something I talk about a lot and, and I'm thinking about uh this is like a marketing funnel so going back to our core principles that we started life in marketing and branding and how do we apply those same strategies to selling shares in your company if you think about any let, let's say you were selling a hundred thousand pound subscription annual subscription for a piece of um, technology would you expect seven prospecting meetings to turn into a sale Probably, probably not. not. Probably not. Um, depending on the sector and 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 the product, but probably not. Um, the ratio is probably near fifty prospecting meetings to to one hundred thousand pound sale. Now you're uh, this is a 
100, 200, 300, 500,000 pound sale. Maybe, maybe people are, are putting in a, a check size of anything from 50 to 150K. So that, that you, you need to kind of think about this like any other marketing, uh, sales and marketing process and think about the, the marketing funnel. I need to load prospective investors, angels, high net worth individuals, VCs into the, into the top of my funnel. And I need to, I should expect some of those, you know, some of those to want me to pitch to them. And then once I pitch to them, I need to expect a number of those to drop out. Um, and, and they'll drop out every phase of the funnel. So the initial pitch, the second and third meetings, the, the due diligence, the legals, the, the depositing the cash, you know, all of these steps, there's opportunities for, for investors to drop out of that, of that funnel. So generally speaking, it is a, is a 50, 50, 10, two, one rule we, we use. So for every 50 pitches, uh, 50, um, conversations, you'll end up with 10 pitches, two expressions of interest and one investor. So you got you got fifty pitches. I don't know how many outreaches you had to do to get those fifty pitches, but it was probably five times that, maybe two hundred emails, three hundred emails, and you got fifty pitches, and then you got ultimately fifteen investors at the end. So that matches that sort of fifty ten two one rule of fifty pitches down to. In fact, you did fifty pitches to fifteen, which is incredible, but slightly different scenario. I tend to find most. That's quite a large number, isn't it? So it's probably a larger number on a smaller check size, maybe. Yeah, I'm not. I'm yeah. not sure, but um, yeah, it's it tends to be around five or so investors on average per round. I, I tend to see. Um, but yeah, and and we've had, but but equally, it can. We've had founders do it in one week with one pitch, because they just happen to know the right person. Mm. But if you don't know the right people, if you don't already have them lined up, if you haven't already been nurturing them. And letting them know that something's coming for the last 12 months. And every time you meet them, giving them an update on your progress, people read those stories. Oh, I did my pitch deck and, and I closed my round in a week with one investor. It's like, yeah, but you've been nurturing them for the last 12 months. Yeah. You've been telling them about your progress and your traction, and your validation. They've been on that journey with you. And now you've opened your round and they were ready to invest six months ago. You just weren't ready for them. So if you're from a standing startup, you need to start building those. There, there is no reason for founders who are thinking of raising investment in six months' time to not start reaching out to investors and high net worth now to say something's coming. Here's the vision. Here's a handful of slides just explaining the vision and the value proposition. We're currently working on this. Once we hit this milestone, we'll be opening our funding round. We think that's going to be in six to eight months' time. We'd love to stay on your radar if you think this aligns with uh, with the type of investment you'd be interested in in exploring further. And then you, they're like, yeah, "Yeah, this sounds sounds good. Keep me posted every two, three, four weeks. Send an update email. Here's all the progress we've made to date. Here's the opportunities that have be- appeared to us. Here's here's some sort of noteworthy news. Like we've got this." individual who's very, very well respected on there you know in the industry as an advisor or you know you could just start dropping little nuggets of so over that time between now and six months time by the time you're pitched they're going look i was ready two months ago you've been making such incredible progress i've been waiting for this and <laughs> i've been you know knocking at the door um and, and we've seen founders who do that we've seen some do it accidentally they realize that they're, they're being that clever about it, but they are, and, and then they close their round really quickly, <laughs> and others others deliberately go down that route. But um, it's part of that resourcefulness, right? Some of them are naturally resourceful, and they don't realize that they're 
building an audience of potential investors just through how they naturally operate. Um, but yeah, if you can do something like that, you, you, you make your life so much easier. So it's about showing yourself as a, as a leader in your space and, and, you know, not being afraid to, to start pitching early. Um, mm-hmm. you don't have to wait until everything's in place if you approach it in the right way. Audience building is an interesting topic, which I also want to talk about a little bit later. Um, but before that, um, are there any other crazy or very interesting stories that you can talk about? So, for example, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you had a founder who just went and pitched to one person and raised in one week. So that that's kind of crazy. But maybe maybe there are any other stories that are, I don't know, very... Are you, so, Maybe fundraising stories that really stuck in your mind uh, for whatever reason. If there are any any funny, interesting stories that you can talk about, because it's usually fundraising is usually something that happens behind behind closed doors, and a lot of people don't really know much about it. Right? It doesn't happen very publicly. Um, but maybe there's something. This is the yeah. allowed, so it all stays behind closed doors, anyway. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, I won't mention names um, or, or anything like that. But but there's probably a couple. So I'll, I'll start. That are useful. So, so there's the one that that pitched, did one pitch in one week and raised raised the capital because they'd been nurturing this individual for for years. We talked about that. There's another um, founder who managed to raise in a week, and they did that by having a, a bold plan of rather than one to one pitching, I'll do I'm going to do one to many pitching, and I'm going to do one to many pitching because they will physically be able to see the amount of interest there is in this business. Mm. And if they physically see the amount of interest, that's going to give them social proof and reassurance that Love. this is this is like an exciting opportunity. So it's kind of playing with investors at their own game. They're always saying, come back when you've got more traction. Well, you're showing them the just, traction just, you have in your round. Sorry for interrupting. I just heard this phrase the other day, nothing, attract, uh, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. Exactly right. You, you you see a a shop launch and there's a queue outside the door and you can't help but join the queue to see what all the fuss is about. Um, it's exactly that idea. So you haven't got a physical store with a queue outside, but what you could do is arrange a pitch event, or or in this founder's case, they arra- they booked out a, a meeting room, a ten ten person boardroom, morning and afternoon for five days. Now they spent about a month before that week doing that kind of warming up investors I talked about. We've got a pitch coming. We're, we're, we're starting to get ready for investment. We're, when we hit these milestones, it'll be ready. They did all of that while they were building their business, getting their traction, putting their business plan and their financials and everything together. Then when they were ready, they, they started contacting all those individuals back saying, look, we're ready to open around. We're doing a week of pitch events. We've got morning and afternoon sessions. This was pre-COVID, so it wasn't Zoom. It was it was in person. Mm-hmm. People actually travelled to meetings back in those days. <laughs> um, but they all they all turned up, and they had sort of eight to ten people in a room, and they had an expression of interest form on every desk, which is basically your name, how much you might be willing to commit to this round. Are you looking for SEIS, EIS shares? Are you looking? Can you bring anything else to the table other than money? Um, and then anything else you want to mention on this form. And he did the pitch. And he knew he was pitching to high net worth individuals and not necessarily seasoned investors. All the, not all of them understood SCIS and EIS. So half of his pitch was spent explaining this incredible tax scheme as if it's, you know, only a, a small, you know, it's a, it's a new thing that very few people 
can get. So it made it sound quite exclusive. They got this exclusive arrangement with the UK government, you know, sort of, sort of gave it this little big up <laughs> because not half of the room had never heard of it. And suddenly they were like, so I can put 50K into you, get 25K back against my tax bill and get loss relief. So I've only really got this at risk. And he's like, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Um, and and he used all the levers available to him, had all of these um, all of these sort of eight to 10 investors in a room morning and afternoon. Someone sitting there kind of on the fence, but maybe not a seasoned investor, so unsure whether or not to what they should ask, but they see someone else asking a question and then this founder responding very, very um, well to those questions. So that gives them the confidence that perhaps this is as good as it seems because they might have otherwise been a bit too like, oh, I don't know, I've never done this before. And he ended up closing his round in that week. He got enough in expressions of interest to more than close his round and then he rang them all back. Uh, in order of preference based on what they put on these expression of interest forms that I've got some good news and bad news. The good news is I've got enough to close my round. The bad news is that some invest that I've got more than I need and I'm not planning on overfunding. So some investors are going to have to miss out. You're one of my top pick investors. I'd love to have you part of this journey. I think, you know, the fact you can bring X, Y, and Z to the table is absolutely aligned, uh, absolutely valid so valuable to us or I, I love the way you are aligned so aligned to our vision whatever it is um can you let me know whether you're um can you let me know on this call or by the end of the week via email whether or not you're in because i need you to edu add you to our heads of terms i need to get the lawyers involved to get the the process moving mm -hmm. you have now in a situation where if i don't say yes i'm going to miss out because you're saying i don't it doesn't oh that was the other thing oh by the way if you've changed your mind, if you've decided you don't want to move forward, it's absolutely fine. As I said, I've got more investors than I need, so I'll just go to the next person on the list. Um, like I say, you're one of my top picks. I'd love to have you on on board. So there's suddenly this time-bound kind of, if I'm in, I'm in. If not, I'm going to miss out on this incredible opportunity. So that absolutely brilliant strategy. Um, very few people are, are capable of pulling something like that off, I have yeah. to say. Um, but <laughs> maybe if you just take a little something away from it. Um, and if we've got time, there is one other story that I always like to share. And this is the complete 100%. Opposite. I was just going to comment on this one. Uh, that's, yeah, that's that's a person who you can tell that they're, they're, they're just like a born, either born salesman or showman or put a lot of thought and preparation into this. And... And that alone is a very strong indicator that they're probably a good investment because it's like a person who can pull that off. It's it's that um, proof of this grit and creativity and you know getting stuff yeah. done in a, in a different way. And yeah. that's that's the way, uh, it part of being an investable entrepreneur yeah, in that's it. I mean, it wasn't their it wasn't their first rodeo. You could probably gather that it wasn't their first mm. time doing it. But there's a lot to learn from people like that, and. Um, yeah, they they absolutely nailed it, and um, yeah, it was a it was an incredible, incredible thing to witness. So, so that they called it that that kind of showmanship you said about they they refer to it as with or without you energy. They kind of just go, this is happening with or without uh, you, and they live uh -huh. their life by this idea of this is going to happen with or without you. I'm going to make it happen. I'm confident in myself. I back myself. I back my team. You can either be on board or not. And because that means that they're they're not nervous when they go in. It's not like I really need your money. Please, please, please invest. Yep. It's it, the tables completely turned because they've got with or without your energy, um, which I think is just amazing, insightful. Yeah, incredible. 
So there's a, there's another story I like to share, which is like the opposite, um, in a way. And and this this story I think really highlights to a founder the risks that investors are taking, um, and maybe helps them understand why they get under so much scrutiny before an investment's made. Because there was another founder, quite a young chap. He was just sort of still at university. And we were working with him. It was the first, one of the first deals I was ever involved with when we very first started pivoting into this space as, a, as an agency. Um, and they had created a, a really incredible piece of technology um, at part, a, a hackathon at their university. And they got enough traction and, and they got, um, they built this product that was working and they were getting so much kind of traction and 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 interest for this that they quit university to to pursue it full time so they were they were seen to be an incredible founder um that with like a real talent um and this founder managed to they were raising i think 300k and they actually managed to raise 900k well they got 900k in commitments and they decided unlike story one where it was i'm not overfunding you're going to miss out they decided we'll take all the money. They're 18. They've just had nearly a million quid offered to them. I'm going to take all the money. So they took all the money. They sold probably a bit too much equity, but um, they'd live and learn. But it meant they could get so much more done. And what happened is they went AWOL. They disappeared. They decided they'd made it. They had a million quid in the bank. So they went, They moved to London, had, a, had really expensive flats in a really nice part of town they had a lovely swanky office for the for the handful of team members um and they didn't really build any product they 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 were flying off to the states for business meetings don't know what these business meetings were but they were flying to the states they were using that they were they had sort of an amex card and were using that to get into the sort of the the fancy lounges and there was all these pictures on social media of them sort of living the high life as if they'd made it as a, a as an entrepreneur and mm-hmm. we started, I started getting contacted by a couple of their investors because they kind of knew that we'd worked with them going, have you heard from this founder? Like they've gone AWOL. We haven't heard anything from them. We don't know what's happening. Well, I'd seen these photos on social media because we happened to be connected. And I was like, I don't know what to say. Like he's just having a bit of fun with your you know, business trips with his girlfriend to the States. And I'm guessing that's your money that's that's being spent on that. And it was just a complete shambles and, and investors had lost complete control of this young founder who who they'd given this cash to and, and they had very little they could do about it. Uh very little to prove that any of this was really, you know, it, it was just a really weird situation. I never know quite how it got resolved and if it got resolved, but it was just this horrible situation of the investors just going, what on earth is, has happened to our cash? The founder's gone AWOL, no product's been built, he's burning through cash at a rate of knots, completely kind of just changed overnight once he had that cash in the bank. So that's the fear for these for a lot of these investors is, is could you be one of those horror stories? Mm. And that's why you've got to go above and beyond to, to, to make sure you've, you've really got everything because if they're a minority shareholder, they've they've got very little in the way of power or decision making. You can pretty much do what you want, and and even if it does say in your shareholders agreement any purchases over X need to be approved by all shareholders, it doesn't stop you doing it. Um, it's just really it's it's really tough. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's the complete opposite of a story, but I think it's it it really showcases the the potential fear or the big fear, not potential fear, the big fear of of a potential outcome that could happen when an investor invests in you, and that's what they're you know they've never they've all heard these horror stories and and they're worried that you might be that you might be too good to be true, which is why having the business plan, the forecast, having really kind of put the effort into raising the funds is it really goes to show that you're you're not going to be that mm, that's interesting i can imagine someone being um just extremely probably very charismatic that's how i would imagine this kind of person um and just being very convincing even though they don't necessarily know what yeah. they're talking about or what they're doing right if they weren't a student at university you would have it would make a script for one of those kind of um, uh, hustler TV shows where like a scam artist TV show, wouldn't it? It's, yeah, the fire you know. festival came to mind yeah. when you were talking. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, and I, I honestly think it, it wasn't that there wasn't any deliberate scam at play. They were genuine, but they just got carried away mm. at 18, get, getting given um, almost a million quid just and and burnt through it much quickly than they thought having probably a little bit too much fun and not enough time focusing on the product um mm. and i think it was a lesson for a lot of the angel investors in terms of managing younger founders who perhaps could get carried away um but yeah it's a yeah interesting experience for sure interesting yeah that that's an interesting one as well mm. So you mentioned building an audience before, and it sounds like this young gentleman managed to build his audience as well in a different way by spending his investors' money, probably <laughs> living like a living like a um, wealthy, successful businessman, and he's 18, 19 years old. But but obviously there's a there's a positive side to building an audience as well, right? Or the obviously the right way to do it. You mentioned it before that that can be a very good way to also start building credibility and start building relationships with potential investors. It's a topic that also comes up very often recently when I talk to founders. Um, it seems like a lot of them or a lot of us are considering that or doing that to some extent, right? Because it's also just helps you build your network and helps, it brings opportunities your way sometimes, right? When mm -hmm. you share what you're doing. Um, so it sounds like that's something that you're also an advocate for and that you, you also recommend to your founders I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what's your view on that? And what um, maybe what specifically do you recommend to founders? Because it is also always difficult, um, often feels like a bit of a trade-off, right? It's like, am I going to build my brand or am I going to build the business? Or is that the same thing? It kind of, uh -huh. it kind of is the same thing, but it feels also disconnected. So what's, what's, your, yeah. what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so you could probably split this into building an audience and building a network. And hmm. one is building a brand a business brand and one is building a personal brand. Um, and if you can do both of those things, I think you're going to be much more successful. So, so if you build a brand that people can engage with, that they get excited by the vision, they align to the vision, they want it to succeed, you can build an audience around it. So a good example of that would be a client of ours called Frollo, which is a single parent community. Worked with them sort of three, four years ago. Wanted to create an app to support single parents and co in co-parenting situations. And they built a community of individuals around that topic, around that theme, around those challenges on Facebook and on Instagram 
to the point where it was so engaged they were having physical meetups and putting on their own events and having their own kind of section at some festivals so that everyone could look after each other's kids and and then they could go off to the to the festival and they they kind of made it like the Frollo camp and had all of this stuff happening as almost like a club more than anything and then because they had that audience they could then go to investors and say Mm. we've got thousands of people engaged in this we want to create an app community for them we and and they went and got 500k investment I think off the back of a Facebook group essentially um, they built an audience first. If you've got an audience, you can sell a product to them. Mm. If you buy, build a product but don't have an audience, you're stuck. So, so I would always think about building an audience first, or certainly in parallel with the product, because the audience will one tell you what they want that product to be, and two, once you've got them engaged in the vision and the brand, they'll buy whatever you put in front of them. So, so one is building the audience, and then the other is building a network, and that's where the personal brand comes in. So. Certainly when you're thinking about how do you strategically move the business forward, how do you become highly resourceful, how do you leverage resource, that's much more about the personal brand. Do you as an individual look credible, someone who can make things happen, someone insightful, do you look like a leader in your space? So can you take some of that information that's that's fed into that business around the problem you're solving and the market research you've done as part of your business plan and turn that into articles and social posts and videos and could you do weekly updates on your progress as you develop this business and, and just make yourself this kind of leader this this inspirational person in your industry that's solving a meaningful problem you're shining the spotlight on on this problem you're trying to solve it's not buy my product buy my product buy my product it's mm-hmm. here's a meaningful problem here's the data behind it here's what why this needs to be solved oh by the way we happen to be solving it like this but it's Here's a problem. We need to change the way we do things. Here's how we're going to solve it. And share those insights and those stats to make yourself appear to be an industry leader, someone who really has insights that can that can turn into business success. And then you can leverage that to create connections with uh, the right people. You can go networking, you can talk to other business associates, you can bring in advisors, and they're much more likely to give you the time because they check your LinkedIn profile out and they can see all these articles and these these thoughtful insights and, and you've, you're a thought leader and, and you're going to be someone who who um, is going to be worth having a chat with. You can then leverage that further to get meetings with people um, by saying, I'm writing, a, I'm writing a white paper on this subject. Could I interview you for that? Mm. Now, these are a target investor or a target advisor. They agree to the interview because it makes them feel good. You get to know them through that interview. And then the relationship builds from there and then they become one of your first investors or your first advisors. You could also think, well, now I've got this profile, let me let me start to, to leverage this in other ways by going, well, here's some target investors that I, that I think would be perfect for this business, but I've got no way into them. I could do a cold outreach, but but it'd be better to get a warm introduction. So let me look at their 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 portfolio of companies let me find out who the founders are of those companies and start contacting them and saying, hey, look, I'm I'm about 12, 18 months behind you. Um, we're in a similar space, similar technology, but we're non-competing. I'd absolutely love to take you for lunch and just pick your brains on what it was like raising your first round of investment because we're about to embark on that journey and I'd really value just any input or advice you can give me. The fact you've offered them lunch makes it feel like you really value their time. 
they're also probably a founder in a position where they've never really seen themselves as someone with experience to share. They're still figuring it things out for themselves, but they suddenly dawned on them that there's people kind of 12, 18 months behind them who could can really mm. benefit from their wisdom. And that makes them feel really warm inside. So they're bound to say yes, almost certainly in most cases. And they might say, oh, I can't do lunch, but maybe happy to jump on a quick Zoom call, just taking mm. whatever. The, the offering of lunch is more just to say, I value your time and I'm not a waster, not a time waster. Um, they're going to check out your LinkedIn profile, see all of this insights and go, actually, they're, they're, they look like they're really going to make something of themselves. I'm, uh, it's worth worth a bit of my time. And then you can build the relationship up with them. And, and hey, presto, you've got yourself a network of people who can introduce you to your ideal investors when the time is right. So you could do, this is this is how to be highly resourceful going back to the start. But, yeah. but this yeah. is like building audiences, networks, relationships, but also kind of almost playing chess in a way of, of how do I get to that one connection removed from my ideal target? And then how do I move the chess piece right towards where I need it to go? Um, but I've seen founders do all of these sorts of things and do them all really well. And, and if you can build both that personal brand and that business brand, People buy from people, ultimately, and yeah. you look at Apple and you know Tim Cook, Steve Jobs. When you know at the time had a much more a much bigger personal following than the brand Apple. Look at Virgin, Richard Branson, a much bigger personal following than Virgin, SpaceX, Amazon. You know, every the the, the leader, the the personality, the the CEO, the founder is the one that has all the following. Because people buy from people, people want to work with people, not faceless brands. So you, if you can build both, I think you, you're going to have much more success than just building one or the other. And I feel like it's going even more and more in that direction of people trusting people more than brands. Um, I'm not sure if that's, you say, the internet and social media brought that just because you can follow people more. You can see what they're doing. It's easier to connect effectively with with people, right? Even even though it's just um, by following them, you know, their page on social media or whatever. But um, I think for some reason, yeah, and that, that's why the whole rise of influencers, right? That's why influencers and content creators are such a big yes, big thing because um, you just trust them. If you've got an audience, I mean, Prime, the drink Prime's a, a, a prime example. Um, yes, like yeah. it's a. It's a really terrible fizzy drink, quite yeah. honestly. And I've heard that it existed already for for years and years before. I did it. Uh, I hadn't had it. Probably, yeah. probably. But you, but you stick it in. You team together two influencers with a following of a particular demographic, and suddenly it becomes the most sought of after product of the year. And it's just a really crap version of Lucasade. Like yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's it's bizarre, but it, they have an audience. And once you've got an audience, you can sell them anything. That's what yeah. you know. That's what we said earlier. That's what Frollo did. They built an audience of single parents, and they sold them a single parent community. People signed up because yeah. they liked the brand. They liked. They engaged with the with, with the with the the audience was there. They engaged with the vision, and then whatever product you offered them, she could have offered them an app, or she could offer them a, a weekend retreat. Mm. It wouldn't have mattered what she offered them. They'd have bought it because they were aligned with the Frollo vision, with the support and the guidance of solving their problems when it comes to being a single parent. She had the audience. Yeah, yeah. She could sell anything to them at that point. Um, so 
yeah, it's it's super powerful. Yeah. Um, on a slightly different topic, so you've been a mentor and you're you're doing a lot of, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, presentations on on uh, fundraising and those kind of topics. I know you've been a mentor at Google Campus and the Founders Institute and a bunch of other organizations. So. I think you're quite familiar with uh, the startup ecosystem in London in general. So I have a friend who's coming to London for three months. Uh, he's not from the UK. Uh, he has a, an e-commerce store, not a very big one, but it, that's his full-time thing. Uh, he's coming to London for three months. He wants to make the most out of his time here. He wants to meet some people. He wants to get inspired. He wants to learn some new things. What would you recommend to him? Oh, wow. Um I'll be honest. I'm a bit out of the out of the loop these days on those those sorts of things. But yeah, um, uh, what is it? Runway East is that still exist? I think a lot of these places have probably shut down. Um, oh, it's a good question. There's there's the London startup scene. That's where we'll start. Um, so yeah, the London startup scene is is probably the most exciting thing I'm seeing at the moment. Um, so this is a client of mine that um funny i was mentoring them about a completely different business that they were raising funding for and we were talking about some of the stories we talked about today and creating events to get people along mm -hmm. to like launch the fundraising campaign and make a big splash and create a bit of a buzz so he was like well what's a great way of getting something that will help me pitch my business i'll put on a pitch event for founders to pitch to investors and i'll be one of the people who pitches so he did exactly that, ended up with hundreds of founders turning up because this was about a year ago, post-COVID, all the events had died down. So hit the timing perfect. Everyone was crying out for some physical event to go to. And um, investors were turning up as well. About 20% of attendees were investors based on on what they'd filled in on the on the form to attend. And now that's that's blown up. He's done multiple events, great venues. He's now ditched the original business idea and is now pursuing that as a as a as a as a business and and getting funding for that. Um, and it all came off of the back of those stories we talked about earlier. But um, that seems to me to be the the one place that's that's um, buzzing at the moment and got real momentum behind it. So yeah, if if you were to do one thing, that would be the London startup scene, would be the one I'd look at. Nice. Okay. I will check that out. I, it's funny because I struggled with the answer as well. That's why I asked I asked you, because I, I was thinking, I was like, I want to give him the best advice. But I, I think once you're doing this for a while, it's you're not looking for those kind of events. In fact, I, I usually don't like to go to networking events because it's not, I don't know, it's typically somebody who's maybe just at the beginning of their career or you, you don't usually find the kind of people that you would um, really like to networking with or yeah. hang out with, right? So it's usually at one. Kind of closed communities or um, or some more expensive events and so on. Yeah, there used to be one called Silicon Roundabout, which was a good kind of beer down the pub with some other founders. I don't know if that still exists. It depends what you're looking for. If it's just to meet other founders and kind of feel part of a startup community and share war stories, something like Silicon Roundabout's great. The London startup scene somewhere a bit more between kind of meeting some interesting investors and active founders and hearing people pitch and getting inspiration. But if you're looking to make strategic connections, it's less about looking at startup events and more about thinking about industry conferences, industry 
um, industry events that, that that would house the type of individuals that are potential customers of yours or, or, or have experience in that space so you can meet people that that you know the sorts of people you should should know who could give you advice and contacts into your potential clients or or potential mm. advisors so you, so you kind of start to to network outside of business networking groups and outside of startup um networking groups and then start going more to sort of industry events buy tickets for certain conferences and and kind of use those as a way to 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 make those connections you're more probably more likely to do that than uh, uh and the other tip on on networking what really worked for me and we you know when you first start out networking's key and as you get more established sort of networking becomes less of a driver of of business and certainly if you start to build a personal brand but what really worked for, for us was the mindset of we're not going networking to find a client not going networking to find an investor i'm going networking to find someone who might be useful to me at some point might mm-hmm. be able to connect yeah. me to someone the next step yeah. along and if you can go with that mindset you become less of a salesperson going oh will you invest in me and more I'm raising investment. You don't know any investors and more just kind of tell me about your business. Tell me about what you're doing. Tell me about your world. Um, I'm building a business. I've got some really, um, but I don't really want to talk about that. What I'd love to know is how you find this right now and how you find that right now, which is all aligned to your value proposition because it's, you're, you're getting some data about to inform Mm -hmm. your product, but it becomes much more about them and a much, much more conversational. The other good tip, if you end up in one of these events and you do end up speaking to an investor, you know what every founder does? So let me tell you about my idea. This is it's absolutely brilliant. It's the best thing ever. Um, we're raising funding soon. Can I send you my pitch deck? And I'm like, yeah, go on then. Here's my card. But the founders that go up and say, oh, nice to meet you. Oh, you're an investor. Fantastic. Uh, tell me, what's your uh, what's the shining star in your portfolio? Which which mm-hmm. startup are you most excited about and why? And uh, so, and once they tell you the answer, go, oh, and and uh, you must have some horror stories. Like, like, what's the mm. investment you wish you never made, or what's the investment you turned down that's gone on to be a big thing? Make it about them, and then eventually they'll go, oh, and what is it you do? Oh, well, I've got a startup and it does this, and and don't say any more than that. And then go back to them, and they'll go, no, tell me more about your startup. So just be different that's to everyone else, right? Be different to make it about them. Make them feel like you want to know about them. You don't just want their money. Yeah. And they're more likely to invite you in for a meeting than anyone that's gone, oh, I've got a brilliant idea. Here's, here's my, can I send you my pitch? That is such a good advice. And I think in the process of that, you also learn about them. So actually learn about what, you know, what they're afraid of and what they actually like. like exactly. Yeah. So you can uh, really learn you know, pitch as well. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. I, there was this guy, uh, seemed good, but then he went and said this and it completely put me off investing in them and you're going i'm never going to say that you know you're yeah. just finding out um about how they think um much better exactly. than, than yeah asking for something exactly um another thing that came to mind is it was one thing that i've done in the beginning especially in the beginning when i moved to london was um what you mentioned earlier as well just messaging people on linkedin or or email cold emailing people and just not asking for anything specific i was just like hey uh you know, you look like you're doing something interesting or I'm doing something similar to you. Do you want to go for lunch sometime? Uh, no, uh, no expectations. I don't want anything from you. I'm not selling anything. I always say I'm not selling anything because <laughs> on every, on every cold email, cold DM, we usually expect that the person tries to sell us something. 
Um, and you know, a lot of, well, some people don't reply, but some of them do. And some of them became some of my closest friends in London now, right? Or they came That's to a it. podcast or like whatever. And, um, it's kind of like with investors. That's another thing I often mention about networking is like, you need to reach out to a hundred people and then two of them are going to change your life. But yeah. you, you cannot expect that every single one of them is going to be a life-changing encounter, encounter no. for you. So, No, that's it. That's and the... you often find that, that people will circle back years later. Mm, you know, we, yes. yeah. we recently signed up a client that I met networking in 2019. It, it, was a, it was an event at the House of Lords that we were invited to, just to name drop it. But um, uh, it, was, <laughs> it, was a, it was a pretty cool kind of startup tech event about blockchain. And yeah, they, they signed up a couple of weeks ago to be, to be a client. They'd engaged in some events. We chatted occasionally on Zoom calls at, you know, when they were, they were at these sort of various events and stuff. And then eventually they became, you know, a decent, decent client. And, uh, there was no expectation for that. We just met and hit it off in the, you know, at this networking event and they, they liked what we stood for and have followed us ever since. And, mm. you know, these things can take time sometimes as well and not be, yeah. not be instant. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, a few very quick questions for the end, maybe just two or three. Um, what's the number one book or course or person or experience that had the biggest impact on your life? So absolutely Daniel Priestley and his key person of influence stuff. So we, as I sort of said that story, Daniel, we, we kind of loved his stuff. We were trying to implement it and then he, he came across us through it uh, and, uh, you know, ended up being a shareholder and, and supporting us in our, in our venture. And as a result of that, we went on his programs, um, and, and, and actioned what he talks about in his book more thoroughly. And the result of that was just incredible. I think the I'm right in saying the first 12 months after having him on board, we grew 300, 300%. And, oh, wow. and the year after that, we grew 200%. It was absolutely game-changing for our for our business. So so his key principles around the key person of influence, we've talked a lot about today with the with the kind of personal brand stuff and that and, mm-hmm. and, and leveraging that. Absolute game changer. His book around 24 assets and thinking about the valuable assets in the business that someone might eventually come and acquire. Products just one of them. There's culture, there's systems, there's there's all of these, you know, 24 different assets that hold value in your business. IP, methodology, all of this stuff was a complete game changer on kind of thinking about how what we build other than product to make sure we have a valuable business we can sell. And then his his thinking around being oversubscribed. Again, is an absolute game changer in terms of sales and marketing. And that very much relates to some of what we've talked about in terms of having a waiting list of investors mm-hmm. and having a, have, making it really obvious that you're in demand and people want you. Um, so yeah, he, those three books and, and going on, you know, actually investing in his or him investing in us and being able to go on his courses. Um, but it's one of those things we, we've been, we've been kind of holding off going on his programs and doing all this stuff because we're like, will it work when it work? Oh, I don't really know. Um, and it's one of those things that we wish we'd have done it earlier. Mm. We wish we'd have done it three years earlier because we'd be so much further ahead in our business if, if we had. So yeah, for me, they're hands down the, the game changes. 
That's amazing. You know, I've obviously I've heard of him. We've even exchanged a few messages at some point, and we, he's. I mean, if you're in the UK, he's quite. Yeah, he's, he's quite quite known in this in the startup ecosystem, but I've never really I never really took the time to dive into any of his materials and the things that he's teaching. But it sounds like I need to change that. <laughs> so the the whole reason advice. the whole reason this book exists is because of Daniel. Um, and and that Amazing. that book changed changed the course of our business. So, um, yeah, yeah, well well worth. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of business gurus out there. And sometimes because Daniel's so good at marketing and so good at his, he's got such a big profile, he can sometimes get bundled into the categories of some of those kind of slightly cheesy kind of business coaches that sell you a course mm-hmm. that doesn't really work. And and people are worried, I think, with Daniel and his stuff, he's just another one of those. But he absolutely isn't. Like he he unlike most business coaches who don't seem to implement any of their strategies that they teach, um, he lives by every single business he's built and he's now on his fourth multi-million pound business he's built around the strategies he shares and and that's his formula and it and it works so yeah he 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 lives what he teaches he lives and breathes it and and yeah he's fantastic nice okay thanks for that recommendation um one final question for the end you see a lot of um startups you see a lot of pitches you see a lot of uh, business ideas is there any area where you see opportunity right now, business opportunities right now for startups, for entrepreneurs who want to start something? Wow. I mean, there's opportunities all over the place. Um, obviously, the, the, I think the obvious ones are obviously sort of AI, Web3, um, but also there's a lot of noise around that. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people kind of just tacking blockchain and AI onto the end of things that don't really require it and, and don't really need it um, just because it's a keyword. So I think it needs to be genuinely required <laughs> mm-hmm. and as opposed to a fad. Um, I think there's there, there's always opportunities in the UK around fintech. I think, you know, we, we're sort of talking about th- fintech 3.0 now. We're doing sort of very back-end stuff, all, all the sort of front-end stuff's being done, like consumer-facing stuff's been done, a lot of a lot of the the, the system stuff has been done. It's now about integrations and connections between between fintech. So it's kind of like the third, I think I think it's something like the third evolution of fintech and fintech 3.0, I think they're calling it. But it's getting more complex. This is the thing, right? As as we're not building simple products anymore. T- 10, 15 years ago, it was like, oh, I need to demonstrate I can build a marketplace like Amazon. Now that's that's done at a click of a button on on something like Shopify. And so now the level of technology and the amount of funding needed just to build a very basic prototype is is quite quite large. Um and, and it's quite an interesting development that there's a lot of tech that's highly valuable that that none of us see because it's just connecting stuff together. So we had a, a client do something around in in, in insure tech. But it was it was something to do with connecting all of the different component parts together like when you make an insurance claim you ring the people to make the claim and they have to send that off to the insurance company the insurance company have to send something off to the to the people who actually write the the insurance actually back the the loan to get the money to send it back send it to you and it's all very complicated and it's still done on an excel spreadsheet and there's millions billions of pounds being lost 
and oh. overpaid and underpaid and and put into wrong accounts as a result of this and they're looking to and it's 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 highly complex but massively valuable um and it's those sorts of things where i think there's huge opportunities for the right people but also the funding required just to get an even basic version of that to start to function to allow a large insurance company to feel comfortable adopting that as a solution you know we're not talking about making a basic single feature mvp here so the mm. game's changing slightly and, and investors almost need to keep catch up a little bit to say look we're kind of past for a for a lot of industries like fintech like insuretech we kind of feel like we're moving past the kind of classic eric reese lean startup mm. and yes mm. you want to be yeah. lean and yes yeah. yes those principles still apply but there's still very much a focus on what what's the mvp what's the minimum viable feature what's the single thing and, and not every highly valuable business is going to going to generate huge wealth can achieve that in a, in a way that that could could work um so yeah it's it's an interesting time i think of a bit of a transition between that we're building a dating app versus we're solving this multi-billion dollar problem within the insurance space that's that's very technical and behind the scenes interesting nice okay well thank you for that um we're gonna wrap up at this point james thank you so much um i've learned a lot i'm sure anyone who is looking to raise funding they've hopefully learned even more um they should follow you they should uh, get your book. What's the best way to uh, follow you, to reach out to you? Yeah, well, connect with me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. Um, so if you just search James Church on LinkedIn, yeah, I'm sure you'll find me. Um, and if you want to copy the book, any anyone listening in the UK, um, will, if you go to um, pitchready.co.uk, um, you'll be able to take a short quiz to test your investment readiness and you'll be able to get a link to get a free copy of the book sent to you in the post. No postage, all on us. If you're outside of the UK, you'll get a, a PDF or an audiobook version. You can choose what, what, you, what you'd like. So if you want to digest more about what we talked about free, just go to pitchready.co.uk and get yourself a book for free. There you go. Absolutely no reason not to get the book. Um, I'm going to link to the to the page also in the, in the podcast description. So it's all just one click away. And thanks again, James, for coming on. No, you're very welcome. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the content, please do me a favor and click the like button on YouTube or give us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, leave a comment, subscribe if you want to hear more from us. Uh, that really helps also to get the podcast out there and that helps me get more interesting guests and create even more interesting content. So I really appreciate it if you do that. If you have any other comments, questions, feel free to message me. You can find me on Twitter. That's usually the best channel. Um, the link should be somewhere in the description and uh, yeah check out my Twitter I try to tweet interesting stuff about similar content that we talk about on the podcast um, key insights from the podcast as well and just generally stuff that I learn and stuff that I do so see you thanks